First reading is an episode from the life of Christ found in Luke chapter 21. And the first two passages of scripture that are listed there are wrap-ups and conclusion to our series we've had these last few weeks on, on stewardship and the grace of God and giving and all of those sorts of things. And Paul is preaching and follow-up. If you want to know what that sermon's about, you've got to go hear him at 930. Uh, because he, he's finishing up that particular part. Then the third text you see there will be our text for this morning. But let's hear now the word of the Lord as we conclude and, and summarize what we've been taught now for about four weeks. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And then continuing over with Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's page 1008, 1008 in your pew Bible. It is Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two very familiar passage to you. Most of you probably have memorized it in your Bible study, in your personal devotion. But I want us to take a look at it this morning to try to see some things that are very practical for us. Here now, the word of the Lord is our text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance that race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews is, and most of you know, Hebrews is a long exposition. It's really an exhortation. It is designed to bring comfort to people who are living in pretty difficult times. It was written uh, probably 
uh, right there in the very middle of the early apostolic age, before the destruction of the temple. And it was written to a general audience. Certainly, the Hebrew Christians in Judea and in that area there, but also probably to the diaspora, that is the Jews that were scattered throughout the known world, who had become believers in their Messiah. They had trusted in Jesus Christ and they were seeking to follow him, but they had come under quite a bit of persecution in addition to some of the general hardships, economic and other social hardships that they had by just being believers in a hostile world. So he's been exhorting them, and in his exhortation, it's a magnificent interpretation and explication and a showing forth and a bright shining forth of Christ in the Old Testament, who is our high priest. And so the writer takes all of those priestly functions and all of that typology, we would call it, that points to Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, Christ was concealed behind types and shadows. Uh, some of the things of the truths of God were only put forth in weak and beggarly elements, it's said. There were also various teachings in the Old Testament that, that pointed to Christ, some clearly and brightly, but some a little more dim and shadowy, things more suggestive than explicit. And so he's been pointing them to Christ by bringing out everything in the Old Testament that he deals with and showing how it is centered in Christ, the reign of Christ, the ministry of Christ, etc., etc. So he's been giving them a really incredible amount of good teaching. In fact, one, at one point he sort of chastens them a little for not being able to hear deeper doctrine and more sound doctrine that they were kind of used to uh, hearing simple things and simplified things and unfortunately simplistic things. And now he has enriched and corrected so much of their understanding and so it's been excellent. And he concludes telling the people that they should look to Jesus in faith, showing us in chapter 11, that well-known faith chapter, where the writer lists, starting with Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, uh, and uh, Rahab and just Joshua, just one after another of the great leaders and patriarchs of the old covenant where God had dealt with his people and how they had, even though through kind of a shadow darkly, they had seen and believed in Christ. They had seen him in numerous places, in the rock in the wilderness, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. They had seen him in the priesthood. They had seen him in the prophetic ministry. They had seen him in the kingly ministry. All of that is detailed in the Old Testament. It all points to Christ in his offices, not only his, his offices, but his work, his accomplishments. And so that's what the book of Hebrews has been about for 11 chapters. And so he says here that therefore, since we are encompassed about or surrounded about with a great cloud of witnesses, the great cloud of witnesses are the people he's just named in chapter 11. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the rest. This cloud of witnesses, as well as many unnamed people, he simply describes them, were witnesses to faith in Christ. 
even though it was ancient, even though it was primitive, even though it at times seemed not as clear as it is till Christ comes fully manifested in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's nevertheless, it's simply faith in Christ. And so he says, looking to Jesus. That is faith. That's what faith is. An illustration of it in the Old Testament is when the people in the wilderness got bit by this poisonous snake. And in order to heal them, God did not prepare a medicine or a vaccination or an injection for them or, or medicine to take or any other thing like that. He told them to simply look at the brazen serpent, the brass serpent that Moses had constructed and put up on a, a pole and lifted it for everyone to see. And all you had to do to be cured of the poisonous snake bite was to look. That's all. You looked to the snake, believing that God would heal you. So it's looking in faith. In, in the New Testament, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And that's what happens in the life of the believer, is that looking to Christ in faith, we're drawn. And as we're drawn, we come. And as we come, we come believing. We come trusting. We come hoping. We come obeying. We come to Christ in faith. And that's what the Christian life is all about. And that's what I hope to just kind of point out a couple of, of major points here about that. This great cloud of witnesses are not only to, uh, the picture here of course is, a, is an arena and there are runners in the middle of the stadium and they are running and the people in the stands are watching. And that's a familiar picture in our day and time. We have like, we took a little trip this week and we're driving back through a small town in the hill country. And it was a small town. It was one of those where you go from 75 to 60 to 45 miles an hour and about 150 yards. And, uh, and you know you better stop because that one policeman is going to get. It was one of those little towns. And you threw it before you know it. But I looked over across the prairie there toward the hill. was the most massive football stadium you had ever seen. I mean, a college team could play there. But that's just Friday night lights in Texas, I guess. That's that, that, the stadium picture. A full stadium. And that's a vivid picture even in the days of Paul. There were stadia all over the ancient world built by the Greeks and the Romans. And the people enjoyed that. Then that picture. So it's like we're down on the field doing our performance. And in this case running a race. And we're being observed. These are witnesses. But it really goes beyond that. The witnesses here are not just watching us. But they're also the ones that are giving us testimony. What you have is... In the stands are people that just didn't come out to watch the race. These are people who have run the race. These are people that have finished the course. These are people that have kept the faith. These are the people. Not too long ago, within just a few hours, we had a famous basketball coach retire and 95 former players was in the stadium. That game to watch and to be with him during this particular occasion. And so that's what it is. It's, it's, it's the former players. It's the 95 players that have been on the field at one time themselves and have run the race and, and, and finished the course. 
And so they're witnesses. But it really goes deeper than that. As most of you know, the word for witness in the scriptures where Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. And when John insists over and over that he bears witness and that he is a witness and he bears testimony, that word is the word directly, we get into our English language, the word martyr. It's just transliterated. It's not translated at all. It's the word martyr. And it means someone who is willing to support their testimony with their life. And that's the nature of these witnesses. Their people, many of them died martyrs' deaths. Many of them died, the Bible says they all died in faith, not actually receiving Christ as yet because Christ had not come in his fullness and in his humanity upon earth, had not accomplished the great exodus at Calvary, the great death. But nevertheless, they believed and they staked their life on it and they are therefore faithful martyrs, faithful witnesses. And so he encourages us to run that race. And the first thing we have to do to run our race is we have to set aside the impediments. And I think that's what's translated in the Vulgate there, impedimenta. And it's a military term. It's talking about all that stuff you have to carry as a soldier into combat or getting from theater to theater. Got to lay it aside because you've got to run a race. But he fills in the blank beautifully where we don't speculate about these weights and these encumbrances, but they're named and the sin which doth so easily beset us. We're to lay aside. Paul often uses the term lay aside or put off or, or deal with it. Literally, it's telling us here that we have to begin to get ourselves ready for the race. And the word for race is the word we get our word agony. So get ready for some agony, some struggle. And the thing we're exhorted to is to um, run with endurance. Discard the impedimenta, deal with the sin. And it's not just the besetting sin, the sin that doth so easily beset us in the King James. I remember growing up thinking, well, let's see, what is my besetting sin? And it was hard to narrow the list down, but we'd get down to maybe a handful or maybe down to one, you know, your besetting sin. Well, it may, it may be true in your life. You may have certain sins that you are enthralled and you are enslaved to and have difficulty with. And it seems like you never can get what we would call any kind of victory over those sins. But, but fundamentally, it's talking about even more. It's sin. And sin is congenital. You're born with it. Sin and iniquity are part of your conception and birth. I remember the big arguments we had for years about homosexuality, whether same-sex attraction was born with it or was it acquired a choice. And, and the, the discussions went back and forth among the, the psychologists. And, and, but it's a sin. And you're born with sin. That's why so many of them, homosexuals testify of how, how much they felt this way since they were a child. That we shouldn't be surprised. There are congenital liars. We come forth from the womb speaking lies, says the psalmist. We're full of anger and bitterness. There are born thieves, kleptomaniacs, 
in spite of all the cognitive therapy the therapist could give them, they still have the urge and the compulsion to steal something, even when it's not necessary, even when they don't need it. And you just go down the list of the, what we would consider the commandment sins, the thou shalt nots. They're in us. They grip us. They seize us. They hold us down. They hold us back. And our sanctification, even as believers, sometimes seems slow. And it seems paltry. And that's because we have this sin that entangles us, slows us down, sets us back, discourages us, puts us flat upon our back. And the thing that we are to do, we're told, in this race is to deal with that sin and then we're told to endure. And the running the race with endurance, it's the agony with endurance is a compound word and it literally means remain under, to remain under. So we are to remain under the burden, the obligation. We're to remain under that that uh, 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 sin that, that besets us. We've got to hang with it until we work on it and do something about it and do that which the Spirit enables us to do. Because technically we've died to sin. Romans 6 is a fascinating chapter. It said Christ not only died for us, but he also died for sin. So there's something happened on the cross of Christ that deals with our sin. The penalty of sin is forgiven. The guilt is removed. There's a washing, but there's also a breaking of that slavery, that entitlement that sin seems to have over us. We're not under the ownership and the dominion of sin anymore. So when the scriptures call us to lay aside the sin, there is a capacity we have now by God's grace and by the death of Christ, his atoning death, to deal with that power of sin that just tears us inside. Am I talking to myself this morning? Is there anybody out here that struggles? Has anybody out here ever lived one day of their life in Romans chapter 7? Where you want to do one thing and you repent and you feel pure as the fallen snow and then before you know it, you know, egregiously fail the Lord and sin has crept into your life and it is now once again showing itself and you're becoming the person you do not want to be. That which you hate, you do. That's the struggle. And that's what the exhortation here is for us. And the, the thing that moves us in that way is genuine repentance and faith. Laying aside the impediment, the sin, the congenital evil and corruption that's in our lives. In repentance and looking to Christ in faith. And that's really what repentance is, is it's a change of mind, a change of understanding, a change of outlook. It's mental. It's intellectual, but it's also emotional. Repentance is learning to hate that which we ought to hate and to love that which we should love. And the Spirit of God puts that within our hearts. We want to love God with all of our heart. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to love people. We want to serve. 
We want to love holiness. Does anybody in this room love holiness? You, you can't stand yourself, the sinful self, and you wish you were pure. You wish you were righteous. You have a longing to be, to be upright and, and perfect in all of your ways. And you have a way of honoring God, and, and you hear the commandment of the Lord says, Be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. And you want your life to be like that. And you feel like something's wrong with me. I'm, I'm, I'm stale. I'm stagnant. I'm, I'm, I'm dirty. I need a cleansing. Well, that comes from the change of an affection. It's emotional. What do you love? Do you love your sin? There is such a thing as the pleasure of sin for a season. That's mentioned in the chapter before, chapter 11. Pleasure of sin for a season. Do we live there? Do we live in the pleasures of sin? But it's a season. It'll be up one day. It'll be over. You won't, you won't get to enjoy the pleasures forever. And the Bible is filled with the admonitions of the, the way of the transgressor is hard. And there's a ignominious and a bad ending to our sinful life. And God is calling us away from that. He's calling us as believers to move away from a life that is mainly characterized by sin and selfishness and move toward one that is more toward God, more and more sanctified, more and more dying to self, more and more dying to sin, and more and more living into Christ. And that's what brings us then to the positive side of our... Oh, by the way, I didn't mention my third point on repentance. Repentance is emotional. It is mental, but it's also volitional. You've got to change your ways. You've got to do differently. You've got to go forth and be like Zacchaeus. You've got to start taking care of business, rectifying, restoring, walking in new paths, living according to a new lifestyle, talking a new vocabulary. Old things pass away, new things come into existence in our lives because we're new creatures in Christ. But it's all looking to Jesus. It's having our eyes on him. And the, the scriptures define here as Jesus as our forerunner and our finisher, the founder. He's the one that put in the first particular slabs of the foundation. In fact, Christ is the very cornerstone of the foundation that is laid of our faith. Our faith starts with Christ. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid. It, it starts with Christ, and Christ is the one that takes initiative. Because while we're ungodly, Christ died for us. We don't effect, with an E, effect, we don't effect our atonement and our salvation by our approach of obedience or our change of heart and change. But Christ has already started it. He started the good work. He's laid the foundation. He's called you to himself. He's opened your eyes to see yourself and your sin. He's opened your eyes to see him and his glory. He's, he's already begun this good work that is within you. But then he's beyond that, his faith, our faith is, 
is finished. Uh, it's the word here for distance. It's interesting the way they talk about the distance in a race. And that's what the finisher means. Matter of fact, uh, how many of you in here have ever run a marathon? A good old 26? Yeah, I knew there were a few of you. I can't believe that. I mean, that's just, that's just cruel. I know it could be done because I've known people have done it. I've been at the finish line when they finished. And uh, so that, but and that's, that's what he's talking about. Christ will take you that far. Even though a marathon is a long haul. And what do you have in the middle of an air, a, mar, a marathon? I used to run a little, but never 26 miles, closer to six miles at my best. But it would be agony. And we're to run the race. We are to endure under that agony. Why? Because all we're doing is falling in the footsteps of Christ and following. Christ suffered. And we enter into his sufferings. Because what happened to Christ? He ran a race. He ran a course. He endured an agony. The scripture, the scripture calls it the agony of the cross. I, won't have, I don't have time to go into the ordeal of suffering. Most of you are very familiar with it. But crucifixion was not designed to kill a person. It was not just an execution method. It was designed to humiliate a person. There was shame. There was curse. There was nakedness. There was a repulsion involved in the crucifixion ordeal. In the case of Christ, he was beaten severely before he was ever taken out to be crucified. There's physical torment throughout the whole body. Flesh wounds from the top where the, nail, I mean, where the thorns went in to the nails in the hands and feet to the spear in the side all the way down to the feet and the lacerations on the back. The, the spear in the side was, was, was just to show forth that God kept his promise for, from Zechariah that I will open a fountain in Jerusalem for the cleansing of the people. And that's what that spear was when that Roman, Christ had already given up the ghost. When that spear went into his side, he'd opened him up. It was a horrible ordeal. It was a horrible agony. But what was going on there? He was bearing your sins and my sins. He became a sin bearer. He took upon himself our curse, our condemnation, our guilt. And he took the one penalty in the Old Testament that had been set forth of many things, hunger and thirst, privation, reproach, nakedness, famine, all of these things that were spelled out in the Old Testament curses, which we looked at sometime back a few weeks ago. All these Old Testament curses were all employed upon Christ in his suffering. And he did what? He finished. In fact, his final words before he gave himself to the Father was, it's finished. A debt had been paid. A war had been won. A peace had been, uh, an agreement had been made. He finished. He endured the cross. Despised the shame. Imagine your sin, imagine what your sin does to you with your shame and guilt. Imagine what it would do to a perfectly innocent person. I feel bad enough when, when I'm accused of doing something I did that's wrong. But I really feel bad when I'm accused of doing something wrong when I didn't. And that's, that was Christ. That was Christ's suffering. He had to suffer a reproach that he did not earn and that was not really his. But the scripture says that he endured because he saw a joy. 
And I think he was looking forward to that great moment when every single solitary soul for whom he died would be gathered around him at the throne eternal. In fact, he's already gone ahead by his resurrection and exaltation, suffering the humiliation. Now he goes into his exaltation. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. He is now seated in heavenly places. And from there, he has accomplished. The right hand is the hand of of dexterity, it's the hand of power, it's the hand of skill, and, J- and Christ is God's right hand, and he has done the work of the Lord with precision and skill and industry and effectiveness. He has wrought salvation for his people. And so he sits down at the throne, victorious, reigning. Looking to Jesus, that's faith. Enter into his suffering, following him, staying under, remaining under, enduring, bearing the burden. You don't know Christ intimately as you should unless you are beginning, beginning to have struggle and agony and you need him. You've got to have him. If he's not in your life by the means of grace, He's not in your life. You won't have that help and you won't make it. You need him. You call upon him while he is near. Trust him. Look to him. Believe him. Walk with him. Sup with him. 